Good morning, everyone. I'll just add my greetings to the ones that have already been given this morning and glad to see each one of you out there today. And especially if you're visiting today, uh, glad to have you with us. I hope we'll get a chance to greet you after the service this morning. I was thinking, as Job was making his announcement about the bridge this morning, that in all of the lists of spiritual gifts that we see in Scripture, there's lots of them. They cover the breadth of, of things that uh, the, the gifts that God has given people. I've never seen negotiating rent uh, as one of the spiritual gifts listed in Scripture, but I think Job has that one. He is really good at it. So Job, thank you for using your gifts to serve the church in that way. Really a gift to us, and we're glad to be able to talk to you more about the bridge as it's coming. We're going to be continuing in our series on Philippians this morning, and we're going to start with Philippians chapter 3, looking at verses 1 through 14. We're skipping over a section, the last part of Philippians chapter 2, where Paul talks about Timothy and Epaphroditus. And it's not because they're not good guys, but we are going to come back to them next week. And so I just wanted to let you know that if you are following along, as I know you all are, following along, reading through the scripture with us, in case you're wondering why we're doing that, we'll come back to them next week. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Hear with me the word of the Lord. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, we who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have a reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God and heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for the gift of another day. We give you thanks for calling us into your presence this morning to sing your praises and to hear your word read and preached. And we ask, Lord, now that you would open our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit to receive what you have for us today. And we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. 
Amen. I've been asked a few times recently, and uh, I think some of this is being a new pastor in a new place, but people have asked me this, and this has happened several times over the course of my time in ministry, but people will ask about my call to ministry. What is it that led you into ministry? How did you know? How did God speak to you in this way? How did you know to pursue ministry as your vocation? And I always appreciated being asked about it because it allows me to think back over my life in the last 25 years or so, and what has led me to this point? What has led me to be here standing in front of you at a pulpit in the middle of Prague after all of the years of my life? And it's helpful for me to think through those things. I also think it's helpful to be reminded that God has actually called me to something, to this. I think for all of us, no matter what our call is, no matter what our vocation is, we need to be reminded that God has called us to serve him in a particular way, especially on those days when we're not so sure, when we need to be encouraged and reminded of God's hand on our lives. But one of the things, as I've looked back over my years in ministry and over my call and what brought me to this point, it reminds me that Over the course of the last 25 years, I have participated in no less than six ministry internships in order to get me to this point. Now, I don't know if that is typical for other occupations. I'm not even sure if it's typical for ministry to serve in that many internships, but that is part of my history. Maybe I just needed a little extra training to get me to this point. I don't know. But all going back to my college years. And so these internships focused on many different areas of ministry. Several of them were involving youth and children's ministry in different ways, also pastoral ministry in outreach or in discipleship. I also did a chaplaincy internship at a hospital. And so all of that has helped me to learn more about what it means to be a minister, to be a pastor, and how to do these things. And as part of each one of these internships, there was always some sort of focus or emphasis on self-exploration, learning to, to know myself better. What is it that makes me passionate about ministry? What do I think my gifts are? Maybe what my weaknesses are? Am I really called to this? What are the things that make me tick? These are different things that are important to know. And so one of the exercises that I had to do several times in different internships, and this is an interesting one, is people would have us write our own obituary. Has anybody ever done that before? Have you ever done that? I thought it was maybe a unique practice. It feels kind of morbid almost, right? To write what somebody would put in the newspaper about you when you die. Why would we think about that? But the reason they do that is to make you think about what you would want people to say about you after you're gone. What would you want people to say about you after you're gone? You have the chance to do that. Because if you can answer that question, if you can write what you want people to say about you after you die, then it says something about what you think is important in life now. What do you think is important in life now? What is it that you are living for? It's an interesting exercise to do. It makes you think about what your priorities are. What is it that you think that you have accomplished in life up to this point that is worth remembering? Or what is it that you hope to accomplish in your life before you get to the end? What are the things that you think you have going for you? And so ultimately, it tells you something about what you're living for. And I'm not going to go into all of the details about what I put in those obituaries over time, but I did it, I think, at least three times. They changed significantly each time 
you'll be glad to know that I live to a ripe old age. I just want you all to know that. So that's good. So the question that comes from this is, what are you living for? What are you living for? That is the question that Paul is asking in this passage today. That's the question that he is exploring as he writes to the Philippians in this first part of Philippians chapter 3. What is it that life is really all about? What is it that is really important? What really matters? In the first part of Philippians chapter 3, Paul lays out for us everything that he has going for him, at least in terms of the world's eyes. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. His point is that he has a lot going for him. If you want to compare stats, Paul is going to beat you every time because he has so much going for him. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And all of these traits are Paul's birthright. He was born into what we might call a privileged position in the world, at least in the the world of the Jewish uh, culture of the first century. He had so much going for him just when he was born. He was already a step ahead, a leg up on everybody else. Paul has a certain amount of status just because of his family tree. But then he goes on to talk about all of the ways that he has lived his life, the choices that he has made, the things that he has done to add to his reputation. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul is doing everything right. Not only does he have the right pedigree, but he's also improved his status by all of the things that he has done, the things that he has chosen to do with his life. And so for the people that Paul is writing to, to the Philippian church, what Paul uh, has here would be recognized as an impressive resume. There isn't a fault to be found. If Paul was applying for a job and he put this out there for people to see, he would rise to the top of the pile just by virtue of all of the things that he has just told us. He would need to be considered. He's got everything going for him, religiously speaking. And there were, there, there were those in the early church who said that these were the things to be remembered for. All of the things that Paul has just put out there in front of us. These are the things that are really important. These are the things that are worth pursuing as much as possible. These were the kinds of things that mattered and that this is what life was all about. All of these things Paul has just listed here. These ideas about what was really important, they came from early Christians who held to the belief that righteousness was earned by following the law. We talked about this a little bit in our passage last week. It was your obedience to the rules that made you a good person and earned you some sort of status before God. And this group insisted that Gentile believers, those who were not coming out of the Jewish tradition or background, that they needed to convert to Judaism in order to join the church. And that's why Paul is talking about circumcision here. Even with Jesus, following the law was still necessary to be right before God. This was the attitude that many people had. It was Jesus plus obedience to the law. That's what got you saved. And so our passage today starts with Paul warning against this kind of thinking, against this false teaching. 
And this is a theme that we see throughout Paul's writings in the New Testament, that very often he is writing to warn people against false teachings and false theologies that sort of sneak their way into the church, into the teaching and preaching of the church, because Paul knows that it's going to lead people astray. It's going to lead them down the wrong path. And this is something that we still have to be on our guard against in the 21st century. False teachings and theologies that sneak into the church somehow that will lead us astray. Paul was very concerned about it back then. We should still be concerned about it now. And so Paul is arguing very strongly against this view that has come into the church, that you need to follow the law, you need to convert to Judaism, you need to follow all of their rights uh, before you can become a Christian before you can be saved. And again, Paul is the right person to be making this argument because he can check off every box that they would put in front of him and say, I have done all of these things. But guess what? It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Knowing Christ, knowing Christ. For Paul, this is what is the most important thing. It has become for him the only thing that matters, the only thing worth pursuing. Knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord, is what life is all about. Now this is a big shift that has occurred in Paul's life. There was a time when Paul looked at his resume with all of the things he just told us and and he said that he would have been proud of himself. These were good things. These would have been things that he wanted to include in his obituary if he was to write one for himself. But now he considers them a loss. He says they are garbage. They are rubbish. They they are trash. The word that he uses here is such a strong word, it would be offensive to us if we actually translated it uh, into English. And the gain-loss image that Paul is using here is an accounting one. It's an economic one. These were to his credit. All of these things he's listed, he put them in the credit column. These are things that I have going for me. But now, because he knows Christ, he has moved them into the debit column. They're not just neutral things. They actually count against him if you compare it to the treasure of knowing Jesus Christ. Paul has had an encounter with the risen Christ You may remember it described in Acts chapter 9 where he's on the road to Damascus and Jesus appears to him in a vision. He has this blinding light and he hears the risen Christ speaking to him saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And from that moment on, Paul's life was completely changed. John Wesley, who was the founder of Methodism, was from England in the 1700s. He often described his conversion experience as his heart being strangely warmed. By the gospel. His heart was strangely warmed by the gospel. And that's kind of what happened with Paul here in Jesus Christ. That his heart was changed after this encounter with the risen Christ. So the idea of knowing here that Paul is talking about, knowing Jesus Christ, is one we see throughout the scriptures. And it describes a deeply personal and intimate relationship with another person. We might think of the greatest commandment that Jesus gives us saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind. It is something that we are to do with every part of ourselves, with every ounce of our being. This is the way that we are to know 
Christ. Paul is talking specifically about himself here, saying that this is what I have experienced, this is what I am living for. But it is clear from the way that he writes that he sees this as being true for all Christians. That the point of our life of faith, our purpose and goal, is to know Christ. To know Christ in the same way that Paul did, or at least that he was trying to. And to put our faith and our confidence in our relationship with him. Now we've talked about in other sermons as we've covered Philippians how Paul wanted to see the gospel be spread, that that was the most important thing to him. And yes, that's true, uh, but he wants others to know Christ too. And I think we hold these things together, the idea of knowing Christ and making him known. Paul wants to know Christ first and then for others to know Christ as well. He wants to know Christ first because it's hard to introduce people to someone that you don't know yourself. So Paul wants to come to know Christ and then to share the gospel with others. I think this is really important for us to hear that what Paul is talking about is something that applies to all Christians at all times, that we should know Christ in this way. Because I think it's easy often when we're reading the New Testament to leave what's being said in the past, in the first century, as if it doesn't matter for us. But Paul gives a message of freedom to us now. To all of us who are still keeping score in our own life, for all of us who are running credit and debit columns, who are looking back over our past or looking at our lives now and saying, well, look at all of the things I have going for me. Surely God must be pleased with me because look of all the things that I have done or I am doing. Or maybe it's the opposite and you say, God couldn't possibly be pleased with me because look at all of the things that I have done that are wrong, that have offended against God's law. And Paul wants to speak freedom to both of us in saying, you don't have to worry about those things anymore. We don't need to be so focused on these columns and all of the good and bad things that we have done, hoping that we have more going for us in the credit column than we do in the debit column, wanting more things to be on the plus side at the end of our lives. Instead, Paul holds out for us the gift of righteousness, the gift of a right relationship with God. And he says that this is a free gift that can only be found in Jesus Christ our Lord from knowing him. It is righteousness that comes through faith and it is free. It cannot be earned by what we have done. Paul also challenges us to examine in our lives and to see what it is that we are living for. What do we want to be remembered for? What are our accomplishments and the things that we are proud of? It's not that we should totally forget the things that we've done or never try to achieve anything. It's not to just erase our lives up to this point, but we need to see these things in their right place through the lens of the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul wants us to see everything in our lives in light of knowing Jesus Christ. It reminds me of an old song uh, which I used to sing growing up in the church I grew up in uh, called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And the chorus of this song says this, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This is how we are to see the things of this earth through the lens of knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord. As we come to know Jesus more and more, as we grow in our relationship with him, it is then that we are more able to speak Paul's words for ourselves. 
that everything that was to our gain, we now consider loss for the sake of Jesus Christ through knowing him. I want to make two uh, more observations about our passage today, and, and I think they're both important for us to be looking at. Uh, one of these, the first ones is this, is that all of this talk of knowing Jesus begs the question, well, how can we know Jesus? How can we know God through Jesus Christ? The idea of a relationship with Jesus or God is strange for many people. Maybe you feel like it's a strange concept for you. How can we have a relationship with the living God, the creator God, the one who made all things? And yet this idea of wanting, of God wanting to know us and wanting us to know him is all over the Bible, even going back to God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. God wants to know us and for us to know him. So how can we know God or Jesus? And some of the obvious answers are through, I think, things that we've all heard before. We come to know Christ through reading the Bible, through reading the scriptures. I think sometimes we underemphasize how important that is. But God has revealed himself to us through his word. And so if we want to come to know him, we have to be spending time reading the scriptures, studying them, coming to know God's character through his word. Also through prayer, through speaking to God, through developing a relationship that way, through worship and fellowship with each other, I would even say through the sacraments, we come to know God. But throughout Philippians, Paul connects knowing Christ to sharing in his sufferings. And we need to pay attention to this idea. For many of us, I would say, especially from the Western world, from the Western church, the idea of suffering for what we believe is not something that we would really had to deal with very much, at least not in the sense that we've been concerned about our safety or what might happen to us from worshiping God. And I would put myself in that category. And I think we have something to learn from our brothers and sisters who have truly been persecuted for what they believe. We're not called to seek out suffering or persecution for its own sake. We're not supposed to have a martyr complex. It's not meant to be something by which we prove ourselves to God because then we would just be putting another check on the credit side of our list saying, look at what I've done. God must be pleased with me. That's not the point. But are we prepared to respond faithfully if persecution does come? And can we recognize it as a means for sharing in Christ's sufferings for the sake of the gospel? I was reading an article this week uh, about a recent book that was published that came out of the Chinese house church movement, uh, a church movement that is under real persecution. And there was an excerpt in this article from a Chinese pastor who is now imprisoned, has been imprisoned for the last five years, and he was writing to his congregation. And the excerpt said this, he says, when you are threatened with death for the gospel, you find out for whom you really live. He says, when you are faced with the risk of job loss, you know for whom you really work. When you may lose fortune and position for the sake of the gospel, you find out whether you are crazy for money or crazy for the gospel. His point is that there is a way in which persecution and suffering reveal to us what really matters to us in this life? And regardless of where we live or what sufferings we do or don't face for the gospel in this life, for each of us, the truth remains that knowing Christ means following him 
And following him means following him down into his selflessness and his humility. It means a life poured out for others to bring glory to God. It's the pattern of Christ's life that we saw in Philippians chapter 2 that we keep pointing back to, in which Paul says he himself is following. This isn't self-righteousness that we're talking about here, but it can only come from a desire to know Christ and to make him known. This kind of following is marked by joy and humility. Paul's hope is that by following Christ down into his death, that he will also be able to share in his resurrection. And this is another theme that runs through Philippians. Paul holds out the resurrection before us as a promise that we have to look forward to. This life is not all there is. There is eternal life to come, the new creation but we can only share in the resurrection by first laying down our life, by putting everything that is to our gain in the lost column. Jesus says it this way in the Gospels. He says it uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but we're going to look at the Luke version of it. In Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says this, Whoever would be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. In his book, uh, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis puts it this way, and I know I quote C.S. Lewis a lot. I'm going to give him a rest after this week, but I think he just says it so well. He says, the principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred and loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him everything else thrown in. We are called to lay down our lives, to follow Christ down into his death, so that we might also find resurrection life with him in the end. And that's the second observation we have from our passage today, that this is how Paul closes. Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or that I am perfect. Even for Paul, the truth is that he's not there yet, and he recognizes that. But Paul is committed to pursuing the goal of knowing Christ and sharing in the resurrection. This is part of what it means to be mature in our faith, acknowledging our imperfection, our constant need for sanctification and for a Savior, and receiving his grace while continuing to pursue Christ. I like the way that Paul couches it here at the end of our passage today. He presents it almost like a runner running a race, and that's an image he uses in other places in the New Testament too. And he's striving for the finish line. He says, I forget what is behind And that's important for us to hear. We are not defined or bound by the life that we have already lived up to this point. No matter how many good things or how many bad things we have done, we are not defined or bound by that life. 
but there's a reward that awaits us at the end of this life, the fullness of knowing Christ and the life to come. This is the true reward and treasure of the Christian life is Christ himself, Christ himself. The New Testament scholar Gordon Fee, he puts it well, saying this about Paul. Uh, It's a long quote, but I think it's worth sharing. He says, having been apprehended by Christ Jesus, Christ thus became the singular pursuit of Paul's life. Christ, crucified, exalted Lord, present by the Spirit, coming King. Christ, the one who as God emptied himself and as man humbled himself to death on the cross, whom God has now given the name above all names. Christ, the one for whom Paul has gladly suffered the loss of all things in order to gain and know him, both his resurrection power and participation in his sufferings. Christ, the name that sums up for Paul the whole range of his new relationship to God, personal devotion, commitment, service, the gospel, ministry, communion, inspiration, everything. Friends, may we all have such a singular focus on Christ and pursuing him, the one in whom we are given life, forgetting what is behind and running with joy for what is ahead of us in him. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word of grace and of freedom that we are given in Jesus Christ. We thank you even for the gift that we can come to know you through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to pursue Christ in this life, wherever that leads, that we might follow him down into his death, so that we might also find resurrection life in him. Lord, we need the strength of your Holy Spirit to be able to do this. So would you fill us up, we pray, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.